Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I can see some of you. Most of you, I can, I've got these. So you can, it's one of those things, you can see me, but I can't see you. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Welcome to those of you that are still watching online. <laughs> um, you're, we love you, and we're glad you tuned in from wherever you are, whether it's a campground or a beach. If you're on a beach, just don't tell us you're at a beach today. Okay, let us, you know, last week it was like Julie Watts was like, good morning from Aruba. I'm like, I'm glad you're in Aruba, but now I'm a little bitter in my heart that you're just drinking in the sun and all that. No, it's fine. Tell us where you're watching from, and if you hear anything this morning, that'll help you. We're going to talk very practically about some uh, really controversial and historically confusing stuff this morning. So this might be one you'll want to go back to and listen a couple times. So we're glad that you're here this morning. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 today. It's in the New Testament, about halfway through. A letter written by the Apostle Paul, who is perhaps one of the most brilliant thinkers that's ever walked the face of the earth. An incredibly uh, high-powered intellectual guy. And if you read a lot of his ancient writings that have been preserved in the Bible for us, um, some of it is really heady, high academic stuff. And uh, I often have to run to people much smarter than me to help me really get at the core of what he's saying. And then there's other times where he's less talking like a philosopher or less talking like a lawyer or less talking like a professor. And he talks to us like a pastor. He talks to us like, like one of us. And this particular chapter is one of the most plain, down-to-earth, conversational uh, passages in scripture that Paul writes and he's talking to a specific church at a specific time about a specific problem that they were having. We are not the original audience that got this letter the first time. Okay? So one of the things you always have to be careful about when you're reading the Bible is taking it and this is a little bit confusing. We're not always taking it to say, "Oh, this was written directly to me." Well, yes and no. It was written to somebody else first, but it was preserved for us. And so we have to do a little bit of thinking sometimes to say, okay, what are the parts of this passage that are what we call timeless truths? This was true to them when they read it. It was true a thousand years later. It's true today, and it'll be true a thousand years from now. And then which of these parts were specifically meant for that situation at that time for that group of people? So uh, to really condense, you know, to kind of give you this in a nutshell, the who was the Christian's in the uh, city of Corinth. This was an ancient city. And the people in this church were not, most of them were not ethnic Jews. In other words, they were not people who grew up as part of God's chosen people, descended from Abraham. These were people who grew up in a pagan culture. And they worshipped other gods. And these, these are probably relatively young Christians, less, most of them less than a decade old in their faith with Jesus, who had been saved uh, through hearing the gospel through one of the missionaries, one of the apostle missionaries like Paul or someone else. And uh, the particular group he's writing to are the Christians in the city of Corinth, and they met together in a series of smaller groups. They were, they were house churches. I mean, we haven't scooped up any archaeological remains that showed that there was some big cathedral or some big church in Corinth where all a couple hundred of them gathered together. They didn't have that. So when people got saved, they found other people on their street who were also Christians, and they would start having church 
in someone's, you know, for lack of a better term, living room or courtyard. So these are groups of 10, 20, 30. Some courtyards we've dug up were as big as 50. So maybe they had that many people. They would come together to worship and to learn and to study. And so these are the people that Paul was writing a letter to. And here's a good thing about the Corinthian church. They were really passionate about worship. They were um, exuberant to a point that almost every single one of us would be completely uncomfortable in their church service. I mean, I'm talking like um, some of the words Paul uses, and Paul was a pretty extreme guy. He uses words like lunatic, free-for-all, frenzy, chaos to describe their church service, okay? The other thing that he says is you're all doing, he's like, when we look at a church service, Paul tries to say, it should be very diverse, there should be lots of different ways you worship God. Lots of different personalities that feel welcome and comfortable here. Lots of different talents and skills and abilities that are being exchanged as you live life together. He's like, but the problem is you're all doing the same thing. You're doing one thing and only one thing all the time. And he writes a word of correction to them saying you're completely missing the point. And he says, actually, you're being counterproductive. You're repelling people from the gospel. Because when new people come to check out your church for the first time and they have to park down the street and walk inside and go through a bunch of pom-poms and things and sit in the, they don't know what songs you're singing. They've never been into a church before. All they know is that all around town there's all these idol places where people worship all kinds of different idols and people go in there and they go into trances and they speak in weird languages and they're not relational and it's kind of weird and it's kind of strange. And then you're saying, we're different. We've got the true thing. And all these people who speak Greek, and you talk to them in Greek when you're doing business, they come into your service, and you're all in kind of these weird, chaotic, frenzied, lunatic, talking out loud in a bunch of gibberish that nobody understands the entire time. And he's saying nobody could just sit through that indefinitely, and you're driving people away. And so what he's trying to do is bring a word of correction, saying, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some good things you're doing. You love Jesus with all your heart, and you love being together rather than being all by yourself. You love being together, and you love to worship God. And in this case, you love to worship God by speaking in other languages that God has given you supernaturally. In other words, God has given many of you the ability, he says, to speak in a language that you didn't study, that you didn't get on Rosetta Stone, that you didn't learn at school, the Holy Spirit just dropped it into your spirit, and you're able to pull that language fluently up out of your spirit into your thoughts, and you can speak it out of your mouth. But he's saying, here's the thing about it. And he's like, you all know this is true. You don't know what you're saying. The people around you don't know what you're saying. The only person that knows what you're saying is God. He's like, that has a time and a place where it's beneficial to you. But if everybody in the room only speaks in languages you don't know, and no one ever either interprets it or speaks in their heart language, it's just going to end up in chaos and confusion, and then people are going to leave the church and conclude that you're lunatics. That's the summary of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. He says, but I want to give you some practical advice, just like Suba did. Wasn't, I hope you heard what Suba said. I asked her, please write that down and send it to me. It was, if I could put into words the way I think God wants to teach us about worship, spiritual gifts, all the things we read about in the New Testament, I think it would come across in the tone of what Suba said. You just have to say to God, will you teach me how to pray differently or better? There's parts of me that I want to get out. I don't know how, <laughs> you know, so will you teach me in a way that lets me be uniquely me? 
And that's what I see Paul saying here in 1 Corinthians 14. So understand some of these things were directed to a specific church at a specific time. And we have to read it that way. What I want to try and do today is show you that, but also draw out some timeless truths for you so that we can understand what we're supposed to do here and now when we get together as a church. Because here's what I told you last week. God's deepest desire is to be inseparable with you personally. That's his deepest desire. Pastor, could you summarize the Bible in nine words? Yes. God's deepest desire is to be inseparable with you. I'm writing a whole book about it, but that's the nutshell of it, okay? From Genesis to Revelation, the whole Bible. And, and there's different themes that run through the whole Bible. It's not just 66 individual books. There's a couple really big themes you'll find in every book. It's like a thread that God wove through the Bible over, you know, 1,500 years and, you know, 40 different writers or so. And if you know what themes to look for and you pull on that thread, anytime you read a passage, even in the Old Testament, you can pull on that thread and out pops one of these timeless truths. And one of the biggest problems that men and women had to deal with in the Bible was how do we connect to God? God was with us in the Garden of Eden. He was with Adam and Eve. He walked with them. Because of sin, God's presence left. And the bulk of the Old Testament is about how God came and visited a few times here and there. Sometimes God's presence would come and meet one of the the church, one of the patriarchs, Abraham or Moses. Every now and again, he'd come down to a tent or he'd come down to a tabernacle or he'd come down to a, to a temple. But all throughout the Old Testament, people came to this conclusion, we're never going to be good enough, holy enough to get God's presence back like it was with Adam. Everything we've tried is imperfect. And there's like this drama that heightens. It's almost like if somebody could just crack this code, who will ever solve this problem of us being back together with God again? And the solution, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's the one that when he died on the cross, this crazy thing happened that the veil in the temple that used to keep everybody out of God's presence, because here's the deal, uh, in, in the Garden of Eden, you could be with God in a non-fatal way. <laughs> After the Garden of Eden, you couldn't wander into, a into God's presence in any way that was non-fatal. They tied ropes around the ankles of the priests when they went in in case there was some sin in their life that they had committed, that they hadn't asked to sacrifice for, and they fell down dead in God's presence, they could pull them out rather than sending a whole bunch of other people into the, after them, and they'd all be in their big old stack of bodies in the middle of the temple dead. Because Jesus took on fatality and defeated it for us, we can now be in God's presence again in a non-fatal way, through Jesus. And God wants to be with us all the time. He wants to be with you one-on-one, -on -one, personally, privately, all the time. He wants you to be able to connect to him on your own anytime and all the time. Also, God wants to connect with us as a group of believers. First Peter says there's value in being together with other Christians as part of a body, a group, we call it the church, because what Peter says is God's glory is available to us today as a group in a, way that is unother, that in a way that is otherwise una, unavailable to us. In other words, he's saying there's something different that happens when you experience God with others that's different than when you experience God by yourself. There's just some different experiences that happen in community that will shape you in a way that having a similar experience by yourself will never, never shape you. And this leads us to a problem because we're all wired differently. Some of us like our experiences together with others. Others like them by themselves. For example, you know I'm a sports junkie. I love baseball. And, you know, I don't know about you, but when you think about a professional sporting event, 
Some of you would say, if I'm going to go, if I'm going to take in a sporting event, I want to go to the stadium. I want to go to the arena. I want to be with my friends. I want to be with the fans. I want to I enjoy the energy and the life and the experience of being in that environment and the physical presence of the athletes and other people. And some of you are like, if I had to choose, that would be where I go. Others of us are like, just forget it. I'll take my couch and my high-definition television, restrooms right around the hallway, free parking, the snacks that I want, I'd rather watch it by myself, right? Some of us are that way with movies. You want to go to the theater. i got to go to the theater and see it. I want to watch a movie together. Have you ever been in a movie theater and had an experience with the people? Have you ever been in a movie where movie, watching a movie in the theater where people are talking to the people in the movie? Don't open that door. Don't you do it. Have you been there where people clapped during the movie? When the guy finally gets the girl or, you know, Lightning McQueen finally wins the race or whatever, people clap. Um, that's different than when you're like, you know what, I just want to go home and get a half a gallon of Hog and dawes and turn on Netflix. Right? One's not wrong. Yeah, I see, we resonated. We resonated. I got you. Jesus is in the house. Right, no. It's, listen, into, you take, or a concert. Some people are like, listen, I, will, I like to just, you know, Get my get my you know my device and my headphones, or I just like to listen to music with the the headphones jammed in my ears and black everything out and just get lost in a song. And other people are like, I want to go to the concert in a big swarm of people and just hear the sound and the artist. And but there's nothing wrong with preferring one over the other. Some of us education, it's like, look, I don't want to go sit in a classroom with other students and a professor. I'd rather wear my pajama pants and be on my laptop and do it all at home and do self study. Nothing wrong with either one, but you understand both people are going to get an education. One's going to get a unique experience because they're doing it by themselves. Another one's going to get an experience because they're doing it in a group. And there's value to both. And what I want you to understand, if I could get anything across in this series, is that in a day and time where people are devaluing, attending, or being part of a body of other Christians, where people are devaluing being in community, where people are thinking, you know what, I'll just, I'll just gather I'll just, you know, I'll curate my own worship list and I'll listen to it on my own time. I'd rather, you know, listen to this couple pastors because they agree with what I think. And in a, in a time where people are devaluing this, the together part, I want you to understand that the Bible gives us at least two solid reasons as to why you're here today and the unique value you get from being here. One is because God's glory is accessible and available to us as a group in ways that it's otherwise inaccessible. And the second reason is because the, the, the communal experience will shape you in ways the individual experience will never shape you by itself. I can also say that the individual experience with God will shape you in ways the communal won't. But what I'm going to help us do is to cultivate ways you can personally connect to God on your own time. And what I hope we're doing when we're together is you're building an appetite in our times together that you want to feed in your times alone during the week. And then in your times alone with the Lord, it's wedding an appetite and an excitement and expectancy to now come together with other people and share that with others when we come together as a community. You can I'll give you a couple of examples real quick. I wasn't going to do this. I'll give it to you because I can tell I need to drive this in a little further. Reading the Bible. Do you believe that you can learn about God and experience God when you read the Bible? Yes or no? Yes, I do too. Right? I believe one of the primary ways God communicates with us is through his written word. Okay? And you, when you read the Bible, you will learn more about God. You can experience God. You can have God moments and God experiences when you read and think about and study the Bible. Now, 
if you just go up into your treehouse and pull up the ladder, you and your Bible, you can read it. And you can have experience with God. But you're also going to miss out on the value of having other Christians who are reading the Bible with you help you process, think through, and bounce off ideas in some of these passages where you're not making a whole lot of sense out of it. When you read and study the Bible together, like what we're doing this morning, you know, the church should be kind of like a repository of biblical wisdom. And I will tell you, when you read and study the Bible together, even with another one or two people, the Bible will go deeper into you and you will go deeper into the Bible than if you only do it by yourself. The same thing is true about what we're doing right now with teaching and worship. Listen, I know you can go on, you can go online. You can, there are like limitless resources now for you to get a hold of teaching from the Bible and worship music, worship through singing. I know this. And I'm okay with saying that probably a lot of it is better quality than what you're going to get in a local church of a couple hundred people. I get that. But I will tell you this. There is something very different, and I'm guilty of this because I'm a connoisseur of preaching podcasts, okay? Listen to them a lot because that's where I get good preaching because I preach, and you know, who's going to preach the preacher? You know, I got to go to, I need to be taught too. But there's a difference between me listening to a message that's really strong and really solid that was preached 11 years ago, and I'm listening to the recording versus being in the room in the third row when that guy was originally delivering it and sitting next to other people who are listening under that anointing while that person was preaching. It's just a difference. I worship by myself a lot, a lot of the time. We had one of Chase's friends in the car this week, and we're driving somewhere, and uh, I didn't have the music on. I was letting the boys do what they do in the back, mostly saying, stop kicking, stop hitting, stop kicking, stop hitting. And the boy says, well, can you turn on some music? I said, sure. He says, about some rock and roll. I said, what do you mean by rock and roll? He's like, you know, like, like uptown funk. I was like, I don't know that one. He's like, well, do you have any Katy Perry? I said, I, I mean, I've seen her on TV. I don't have any of her music. Well, what kind of music do you have? I said, well, I have music. I have music that sounds like rock and roll but talks about Jesus. Can you dance to it? I was like, well, you be the judge. I turn on some gospel music. He was fine with it, <laughs> right? But you know what? I recognize in that moment there's a difference <laughs> between this guy's individual experiences with music and what happens when, when you're in community. You know, I can turn on I can turn on a worship song and have a moment with the Lord, and I do. And then last week, you know, I turn around after our time of singing together, together, and I turn around and, and I look over to this side of the room, and I won't name names, I don't want to embarrass you, but you know, I saw people doing this, right? I talked to one of those individuals later on this week and said, what was God doing in your heart during worship? And she said, I, I don't know, it was just such a very, I just felt his presence so close and my eyes began to well up with tears and, and I was starting to feel really embarrassed at the end of worship because they were getting ready to pray and do the two things simultaneously part and I didn't want everybody to see me wiping my tears. And so, but it happened so fast and the lights came up and as I'm wiping tears, she said, I turned around and saw another person doing the same thing. And she said, I just went over and gave her a hug. That's one of the things you get when you come together that you miss out when you're by yourself. This is what Paul said is special about being part of a body, you get to experience God not just by yourself. You get to experience him together. But what does that really look like? Uh, some people get really nervous, especially when we talk in this chapter about like speaking in tongues and prophecy and, and some of what Paul like describes as spoken gifts, different gifts, supernatural gifts that God gives to people that involve somebody speaking to other people. Um, 
lot of different theology on it. I, I can break that down maybe later in a different time. I'll try and, you know, don't want to necessarily compare what the Reformed thinking says versus the Evangelicals versus the Charismatics and even the Pentecostals because it gets into a lot of high thinking that uh, some of us would be interested in, others would be like, Pastor, that's just boring to me. So, um, but I want to let you know what Paul says because we're a biblically-based church and we try and follow his advice. Um, big idea for today is this. Uh, this is how I'd summarize the whole chapter. And I wish I could make it shorter. Sometimes I like them to be shorter, but I'm more concerned about it being accurate and complete rather than tweetable. So, you know, this is the best that I can do for you. Um, when followers of Jesus, when followers of Christ come together for worship as a church, their gathering should not become a free-for-all filled with nonsense that leaves people confused. Aren't you relieved? Okay, none of you are. All right, great. Instead, okay, uh, instead a church service should make sense and build people up in an atmosphere of genuine love and reverential order. That's what Paul's trying to get across. Listen, he's talking to a church that was a free-for-all filled with nonsense and confusion. He's not asking them to stop using their gifts. He's asking them to think about how they're using their gifts in a way to accomplish God's purpose for giving them the gift. He's saying, God, it's like you know, me saying to my son, you know, Chase, I bought you a baseball bat to hit baseballs with, not to poke your brother in the head with. The problem is not the, the gift. The problem is how you're using it. One way you're using it is causing problems and division and danger. The other way is causing a sense of fulfillment and order to happen. And so it's the same. He's not saying you can't speak in tongues, you can't prophesy, you can't do this, that, and the other. Let's just completely wipe them out of the church. What he's saying is I want you to be more mindful that God did not give these things to you to just run around roughshod and do whatever you want with them. There's a purpose when we come together. And God gives you those gifts to carry his presence into the life of someone else in a way that will strengthen their faith. And if you're using a gift that God gave you, no matter what it is, in such a way that's only building you up at a negative cost to somebody else, you're abusing that gift and you're misusing it. And I know this. God has begun a very sovereign move of his spirit here at Echo. And sometime maybe I can give you more practical language around that. And I'm not at all worried about, you know, how God wants to demonstrate his, his presence to us, whatever, whatever form that takes on. But I am very aware of the fact that we could easily mishandle it, and I don't want to do that. I want us to be able to receive the full measure of whatever it is that God wants to do through us and among us. So what I did was I just broke this chapter down into a couple sections. We'll read a lot today. I'll read a lot to you in the 15 minutes I have left. I'll read a lot to you. I'll pick up wherever where, you know, wherever we're at time, I'll pick up next week and we'll finish. Um, but I want you to really listen and don't daydream with me when we read because one of the blessings you have here is that Paul is breaking this down and all, to, to me and it's helpful. It's like a sixth grade level understanding, okay? He's writing very, very practically and if you just listen to it, a lot of it doesn't need a whole lot of additional explanation now that I've told you who he's writing to, okay? So let me read to you as best I can see it. I can't, uh, can I? It's just the dots. Here we go. All right, there we go. The first five verses of chapter 14 says, let love be your highest goal, but you should also desire the special abilities this Holy Spirit gives, especially the ability to prophesy. For if you have the ability to speak in tongues, um, another way, if that word is unfamiliar to you, think another language that you didn't study, but the Holy Spirit gave you, okay? In other words, if you can speak in another language that God gave you, you'll be only talking to God since the other people won't be able to understand you. You'll be speaking by the power of the Spirit. In other words, you're not in a trance being motivated by a demon. It's still Spirit-driven, okay? But, but, it will be all mysterious. 
but one who prophesies strengthens others, encourages them, and comforts them. So basically he's saying, look, when you speak in tongues, the person next to you at best is going to be confused and left out. You speak in a language they understand. Now they can be strengthened, comforted, and encouraged. Which do you think is the more, he's kind of saying, which do you think is the more helpful outcome for when you come together as a group? Okay? A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally. Some of us, God has given the supernatural ability from him to speak in tongues. I happen to humbly be a recipient of that particular gift. And I could heartily amen when I deploy that gift, when I pray, or when I'm going through my life, it's like an instant strength pill. It is like I am immediately in a really miraculous way reminded that God's spirit lives in me because this is something I could not do. And it immediately strengthens and encourages me. There's enormous personal benefit to this. He says, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the whole church. So what he's trying to do is get at the motive here. He's like, those of you who speak in tongues, you recognize there's a benefit that you get from it, and it's hard to kind of keep yourself away from that. He's like, I affirm that. I get that. And he's saying it's natural when you're together with other people to want to use one of your gifts that immediately just builds you up. He's like, but I just need you to think a little bit differently when you're with a group. It's not always just about you going after what you need to build you up. He's like, there's something beautiful that's supposed to happen when we come together. We're not just looking to consume. We're looking to build up people around us and strengthen their faith. So everything we need to do needs to be aligned with that purpose. So he's just saying, I need you to be aware that there's people around you that while you're building yourself up in that process, like the guy at the gym who's the screamer, like, you know, he likes to lift heavy weights and everybody in the gym hears him or her scream really loud. It's building them up, but it's weirding me out, <laughs> right? I'm like, I'm going to rearrange the time I come to the gym because I don't want to be around that joker, okay? Um, he says, I wish you could all speak in tongues. So he's saying, this is a good thing and I don't want you to be afraid of it, okay? So please hear me say, I am in no way saying if you speak in tongues, you know, keep, you know, bottle that junk up and not do that. Or if you don't speak in tongues, but it's something that you're curious about, I'm not trying to steer you away from it. He's saying, I wish you would all do this. So he's really trying to balance this out. He's making sure he's not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, not trying to throw the gift out, okay? But even more, now he's talking about in church, even more, I wish you all could prophesy. For prophecy is greater than speaking in tongues unless someone interprets what you're saying so the whole church will be strengthened. Don't mishear or misunderstand what he's saying. He's, he's making a very practical argument if you think about it. I don't know if you've ever traveled to a foreign country where you don't speak a lick of the language they talk. I've been to 23 different countries, and I've been to church services in 18 of them, and never have I been in a church service in a foreign country where they speak in a different language I understood fluently. Every now and again... I'll get an interpreter to help me. Most of the time, I'm there for usually three or four hours. You think these services are long. You know, be glad you grew up here, right? For three or four hours, I'm sitting in a room with other people, and they're totally going at it in another language. And I'm really trying hard to pick up the context clues and figure out what's going on. But how I usually feel every moment is I am a foreigner. <laughs> I don't belong, and I so wish I was on the inside, but it's very awkward. <laughs> I don't know when to stand. I don't know when to sit. Sometimes like coming to church for the first time, even when they do speak your language, where do we stand? Where do we sit? Why is there an offering plate? You know, what do I do with my trash? Is it okay to, you know? And what he's saying is that type of a feeling is not one that makes you feel comfortable and want to stick around. He's saying when you come together for church, 
He's saying prophecy is greater than tongues in church. Unless, unless you have someone who can translate, interpret. Translate and interpret are two different words. Interpret. Translate is like a word-for-word translation. (laughs) I wish I had more time to go into this now. I don't, but... um, that's, tongues is more of an interpretation. It's coming through a human filter. Someone saying, you know, I, I believe this is what God is saying through that person. Um, at the risk of losing those of you that this is new, let me give you maybe a more practical illustration of how this would operate. Um, Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 gives us a list of spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives out to people. It's an incomplete list. It's not meant to be comprehensive. And it's very almost unbalanced. In other words, if you read just that nine, we're part of the Assemblies of God denomination, and our denomination historically is fascinated by that nine, and especially two of them, tongues and interpretation of tongues. And um, part of being Pentecostal is that, uh, you know, people in Pen- Pentecost say those gifts on the day of Pentecost that we read in Acts chapter 2 specifically, the speaking in other tongues, they are for today. We can experience them and deploy them and use them. I would say yes, but at the same time, sometimes people get really passionate about their thing, and we put it way at the top. And we kind of diminish everything else. And that's what was going on in the Corinthian church. When they got together, most of them, we can assume, God had given them the ability to, in real time, speak in another language that God knew, but nobody else knew. This was not a known tongue. Acts chapter 2. You have the apostles and the other 120. Fire of tongues came down from heaven, filled the room where they were, and they all began to speak with other tongues. People outside the room began to hear, and they were amazed. Why? Because they said, we hear other people speaking in our language. In other words, on the day of Pentecost, at least some of the people in that room, God immediately made them fluent somehow supernaturally in a language, and that fluency did not come about by studying. It came supernaturally in a moment, and it amazed people outside of the room who could now hear other people worshiping God in a language that did not match their ethnicity. Okay? A little bit different scenario in this passage. Paul's saying the language that you're using is not one that's the heart language of everybody else in the room. It's a language that God knows, but it's a language the other people don't know. He said the purpose for that to be useful to other people, you need somebody to hear you speak in that tongue, and then for God to supernaturally give them an interpretation that could be shared afterwards that comes out in the language, the heart language of the people. For us, it would be English, even though I know there's a lot of people in here that speak other languages. English is not your first language, and it's hard for you to understand me. English people have trouble understanding me. I talk too fast. I understand. I have no time. I have to get it all out as best I can. You know, and he's saying prophecy accomplishes the purpose of building up the church, encouraging other people. And later on, he tells us it also is supposed to be a sign for people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. And he shows us how it works at the end of, uh, like, verse 24 or 22. He shows us how that works. He's saying tongues could accomplish that same purpose if it's translated. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of unknown language. And it's just going to leave people, at best case, confused, at worst case, repelled. So he says when you're together, if you feel like God wants to use your voice to encourage the whole church... Seek him to give you that information in your heart language first. Unless you feel like he wants you, but he's not giving you your heart language. You just feel like God wants me to talk to people and he wants me to use my tongue. He says, okay, but then after you speak that tongue, then we need to not go any further until God uses you or somebody else in the room to interpret it. Or else all it is 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 confusion. 
Now, some of you are like, what are you talking about? Others of you have been in a gathering of believers where someone has spoken out in tongues and everybody got quiet and no one really knew what it meant. And you waited and you waited. Maybe the pastor said, if someone could please, pretty please, help us out here. If God's giving you the interpretation, please share it with us. I've been in services where no interpretation came. And it's, it's an awkward moment. It just is, <laughs> you know. And it's not something we need to be terrified about. Could God still speak to us today through giving someone a, a message in tongues where we all recognize that? And the person says, I, I, you know, the person just wants to speak that out. And we get quiet and we let that person speak out in tongues and we pause for a moment. Absolutely he could. What Paul is saying, just practically speaking, is if you know God's given you a word to share and he's given it to you in words that you can get out through your heart language, you don't have to wait to speak in tongues first. Just go right. Eventually what we're trying to do is get into a language people understand so that they can gain from it. That's what we need to do, whether it comes through tongues plus interpretation or just a word of prophecy or, or, or another, just some type of a spoken word that fits the criteria of it's for everybody, not just an individual. It is to strengthen the church. It's to be a sign for an unbeliever, and it leaves us built up rather than confused. It meets that criteria, then it fits. And they weren't doing that. They were all speaking in tongues all the time, and people who came in wanting to hear what they were all about left completely confused because no one spoke to them in their language. I know what it's like to feel like an outsider when I don't know the language. It's not a good feeling. You know, I was trying to work in a pharmacy at our medical missions trip with a volunteer from the local church. She spoke about 18 words of English, and I spoke about nine of Spanish. And we're trying to hand out prescription medicine to people. If there's ever a time where you want to be on the same page, have a common language, it's when you're literally handing out drugs in Ziploc bags to sick people, <laughs> Right? And I can tell you, you know, we did the best we could to bridge that gap, you know, and uh, the best I've heard, no one has gotten violently ill from any of the efforts that we did. But I can tell you over three or four days, I mean, we bonded, but I could just tell at times she would just, uh, uh, sometimes her name was Ruth, sometimes she would just, she'd be trying to tell me, trying to tell me, and she'd just go, like she'd be looking for anybody else that could interpret she so desperately wanted to communicate with me, so desperately wanted me to communicate with her, and it's just not a great feeling to be stuck in that gap of confusion. But isn't it nice to know that when God brings us together as a church, he doesn't want you to leave confused. He doesn't want you to leave perplexed. And at the same time within that, he wants you to feel completely comfortable and open to being encouraged and strengthened by maybe what another individual has to serve you with that day. And I also want you to know it's not just those gifts that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 at the beginning where he talks about, you know, speaking in tongues and the interpretation of tongues and prophecy and word of wisdom and word of knowledge, you know, a lot of the things that are spoken out. There's lots of lists in the New Testament. Some people say there's 27 or 30. I think there's a long list of gifts that God's, uh, God gives people that add to the value of being together. And we want to create an atmosphere where that can be deployed. Like today, there was a problem. We were running out of parking. And you saw people's gifts go into action right away. Two of our people that were good at organizing started texting me and saying, hey, we ran into a snag this morning. You know, I'm home trying to get my boys ready for church. Hey, we ran into a snag this morning. Um, but we're going to reorganize the way we do check-in and other things to, to compensate for that. There is a problem that they recognize could derail the morning experience and then have to sit around and think, what is my gift? What did I get on that test? What, do, what, do, what did they tell me three years ago? How do I deploy that here? Just naturally what bubbled up inside of them is I can organize. Well, administration is a spiritual gift, the Bible says. And no, they didn't speak in tongues and no, there wasn't a miracle of healing, but I want you to know spiritual gifts were in operation in that moment. 
You heard Brian reference it earlier. Our welcome team was probably not prepared to greet 2,400 people. Many of whom did not come in smiling, happy to see them. But, you know, they rose to the occasion and said, you know what, I, I don't, you know, did, I, did I pass the friendliness test? Am I, did I have the gifts of hospitality? I'm not sure. I just signed up for something that wasn't the nursery. And, and maybe this is, they, they just, something inside of them just rose to that occasion and said, you know what, we're on it. Another, uh, some of you, God just, when you see a situation like this, you think, this is great. I'm going to encourage somebody. You know, one of our elders came up to me this morning just smiling with a spring in his step. He had to park the whole way down here. He came right over to me. This is great. Look at all these people. The other elder said, just like that vision you gave of us, you know, the bakery and this and that and the other thing. Like, this, look at all the community that's here with us today. And it's what I was already feeling in my heart. And I was a little discouraged because, like, some of our church people were mad at me. And the community was really happy. I'm like, you guys get it. And the spiritual gifts were operating. I don't know if it was a word of prophecy, word of knowledge. Word of, I don't really care about how to name it. All I know is that that other Christian felt like they should encourage me and they went ahead and did it and I felt so much better and strengthened when they did that's the spiritual gifts in operation and it happens through speaking in tongues of word of knowledge it happens through prophecy it happens through healing it ha- but the point is does it build everybody up did it come naturally from somebody that feels like that person might say well I never really thought that that was a spiritual gift well friend one of the ways you figure out what they are is when you see a need arise is it A, a need that resonates with you, or B, that it doesn't? Okay, then you go to the next step. Uh, well, if I see a need arise, what is the response I feel like I can give? I used the example last week of, um, we'll, we'll finish chapter 14 next week. Worship team, you can come back. I, I used the example last week of saying, like, if you heard that a friend's house burned down, okay, somebody from the church's house burned down, or whoever, a friend. You know, if you're looking at one of those flow charts, it'd be like, do I feel any need to respond to this somehow, yes or no? Some of us, I know that's, this is an extreme situation, but sometimes you see a need and there's nothing in you that says respond here, right? But there's another person who says when you hear about that, you say, yes, I, I want to respond. And then I would say, what response would, would you do in a situation like that? And there you'd get a bunch of different answers. Well, I... I is anybody getting meals together for the family? Do they have a place to stay? I would love to open up my home or help them find a place. I'm going to send that person a word of encouragement by text or phone call. I'm going to, you know what, maybe they need help rebuilding something. I'm going to just, you know, offer to show up and, and bring my work gloves and do what I need to do. Other person might say, I'm going to send them a scripture verse to encourage them and really make sure that I go after them in prayer. Sometimes in those moments, whatever your natural response is that you don't need to be recruited to, is showing you one of the ways that God wired you to use your unique personality. Suba said it earlier this morning, you being uniquely you. God has already given you the tools and the equipment that we need to serve others in our family and outside of our family. He's given you a personality. He's given you gifts. He's given you abilities. Paul's trying to speak to this Corinthian church and says, among the 50 of you, there should be a lot of different gifts going on. He's like, but I'm only seeing one. He's like, imagine how much more effective you could be if you give room and space for different people's gifts to be in operation in different ways. Imagine how much more beneficial and attractive being in this community was to be able to say to your unbelieving neighbor, you know, uh, why don't you come with me and, uh, to, to, to church with me this, this week or next Sunday or whatever. And when they hesitate to be able to say, listen, <laughs> you just have to be there. There's something that happens when we come together. I leave so encouraged and so refreshed. You know, you might say, I don't leave encouraged or I don't leave refreshed. Then, then we need to work on that together. We need to work on that together. You know, uh, as I land the plane here and the worship team just begins to lead us in this closing moment, 
You know, I don't know if you, um, if this is your first time or your thousandth time in church, whether you've been through this passage before or you haven't. I grew up basically in church. I can't ever remember a time in my life where I didn't believe in God or I didn't go to church. How many of you had that story? All right. I was born, just a few of us. I, I was, my dad was a pastor. And I literally, when I was four days old, I was in church. And from that point on, like three times a week, like for the rest of my childhood. And you know what? I loved it. I loved being in church. And that was back in the day when they didn't have a kid's program in a nursery. Pretty much, if you were up to two years old, you went into a little coat closet somewhere, you were in the nursery. But three years older, you were in the service. <laughs> and I'll tell you, at three years old, I didn't get a whole lot out of the service. But when I was about four or five or six, we were in a small church. When I was about four or five or six, I loved being around some of the big, strong guys at our church. A lot of the people that went to our church were farmers. They were mostly blue-collar workers. They were big, tough, grisly, stoic, kind of quiet people of the earth, you know, and uh, I knew most of these guys outside of church. They were my teachers or my coaches or my, my leaders, but there was just something that I, when we came to church together and people started to sing worship songs, I remember being about five or six, and when we'd start to sing worship songs, I'd watch some of these big tough guys just lift their hands, and I'd watch them sing. I didn't always understand all the words that they were saying, but man, I was like, I want to buy, I, I remember saying when we, I can't wait till I'm old enough to be able to lift my hands when we sing like the grown-ups. And it's like, you know, I wanted to belong to that. I wanted to belong. I wanted permission to be like, there's just something so beautiful, even though I didn't know how to participate in the songs. I didn't know what it meant about lifting your hands entirely. It didn't turn me off. Watching people that I knew be softened in the presence of God was so attractive to even a six-year-old. And I remember about nine or ten years old, I started to get really anxious about what would happen to me when I died, and it would keep me up at night. And I remember one Sunday night before church, I went over to my dad's office, and I sat down on a little chair in his office, and dad said, what's wrong? I was like, dad, I'm just afraid of dying. And he said, why? And I just started to roll out. I was like, well, you know, I've heard you talk about hell, and I'm afraid that, you know, I'm not going to go to heaven. And he's like, well, why are you afraid? I was like, I'm just afraid I'm not good enough. And in that moment, he recognized I was aware there was something, even at 10 years old, there was something about me that wasn't right, and I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew I wasn't good enough. That night at the end of church service, I came forward and I got down on my knees on, back when they had pews in the church, right? I got down on my knees. I put my elbows on there. My dad came up, put his arm around me. And he said, son, are you ready to, to give your life to Jesus? And I was like, what does that mean? He says, you accept forgiveness for your sins and you choose God's leadership in your life. And I said, as much as I can understand, I said, yeah, dad, that's what I want. And he led me in a prayer and I accepted Jesus' forgiveness. And I chose him to be leader in my life. And immediately, two things happened. I'll never forget. I was wearing this white. Some of you have seen my, grown, my childhood pictures. I had some sweaters, man. I, uh, I had a white crocheted sweater on that my grandma had made with a little red like uh, accent here. And uh, I remember being done praying. And then my dad went on and prayed with some other people. I turned around and I sat in my seat. And I felt weightless. And I had weight issues. And I felt weightless. Weightless. I felt warm. My heart was beating like I could have felt it on the, you probably could have seen it through my sweater. And they were singing this old school hymn, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings like eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. Teach me, Lord, to wait. From Isaiah 53. I didn't understand a word of it, but you know what I did? I threw both of my hands up in the air. And there I sat, like I finally belong. I'm in a family now, and I'm allowed to lift my hands and worship Jesus. And you know, I've had my ups and my downs since then, but every single day of my life, I've never had a day that I haven't doubted in Jesus. 
and I feel like I'm part of a family now, and I love being part of a group of believers that believe like I do, and I can come together with you no matter what kind of a week that I had, and I can worship the Lord together with you. And I want to invite anybody that doesn't feel like you're part of a Christian family into that. I don't know what your childhood was like. I don't know what experiences you've had with God or with church. But Jesus absolutely loves you. And he wants you to be part of a family that will love you like he loves you. He wants you to belong. He doesn't want you to feel like an outsider anymore. And he's done all the work. We just have to do the accepting. Just accept his forgiveness for your sins. And we have to choose his leadership in our life. Let's bow our heads and pray together. If you're saying, Pastor, I am ready to make that decision. I am ready. I am ready. Here's your prayer today. I'm going to lead you in a prayer just like my daddy did when I was just a little guy, 9 or 10 years old. Here's a prayer. Very simple. Jesus, I admit that I need you. I've lived life my own way. I've sinned. And I accept forgiveness for my sins today. Wash me and make me clean. Jesus, I believe you and I believe in you that you're God's son, that you died on the cross for my sins, that you paid the debt, and that that debt has been paid off with your dad. And because you rose from the dead, I can have hope that someday you're going to raise this body to have life forever and ever and ever. And last but not least, I choose you to be my Lord. That means I'm making you my leader. You lead, I follow. We live life your way, not my way. Thank you for saving me. Amen. If you prayed that prayer for the first time today, do me a favor, tell somebody. Don't let that be a secret. Tell somebody. Best news you can give them. Tell the person who invited you. Stop by the New Here booth and tell them. Grab one of the pastors. Tell us after church we want to celebrate with you. We're going to close with, with one final song and a time of prayer. So if you're willing and able, stand with me today. You've got a long walk to your car anyway. You've got another two minutes. <laughs> Next week we'll pick up right where we left off. I won't give you the whole intro. We'll just go right from the next section in Corinthians 14, finish off. And hopefully leave a little time at the end for us to just practice being in God's presence together. Somebody asked me this week, well, how do you get really comfortable, like, being in God's presence? I was like, you're going to, this answer is going to sound weird, but it's all in. You practice. How do you hear God's voice better? Practice. That doesn't sound very mystical or spiritual. It's very spiritual. <laughs> you practice. You just like Suba said, well, one time I just said, I'm God, I just want to sit here for a few minutes and let you teach me. She sat there not knowing what was going to happen, but she just made time to practice trying to hear from God. Just like anything else, the more you devote yourself to just giving time to learn, the more opportunities you give God to be able to deepen those things in you. And we're going to learn to make this feel like a safe place where we can practice gifts together. And some of you are getting really scared about that. Don't be scared. How are we going to learn to be comfortable with this? We've got to learn to practice. So we'll have some time next week to be able to do that. And I'll lead us in a time of, of being able to do that together in a way that will be safe and edifying for all of us. Our prayer team's coming. These are men and women that you can trust, that love you. One of their gifts is praying with people. And so um, what they do is they come at the end of our service. They just make themselves available for anybody who would like to receive prayer. We actually had a suggestion like, Pastor, you know, could we start offering this like 10 or 15 minutes before service? I think it's a great idea. There's some logistics with that. And we got to work with, you know, sometimes it takes us right up to 10 o'clock just to get church set up. But I think that there's a way that we can figure that out. I always, listen, if you want prayer, I'll find a way to make it accessible and available to you in a way. So work with us on that. But for now, we've got men and women that are here that are, that are ready to pray with you about anything, anything at all. If you would just like, we're a family. If you want to get something off your chest that we can pray with you about, we'll listen to you. We'll hold in a confidence. We'll pray with you. We'll encourage you. We'll follow up with you. Just don't carry that weight out of here with you. Let us carry that with you, okay? Let us let you feel unburdened that you can sincerely smile when you walk out that door. Keith and the team are going to lead us in one final song. 
and then we'll, then we'll close and dismiss in just a moment. God bless you as you worship. If you'd like prayer, please come forward.